those two books of the Bible, you probably know exactly the passage we're in this morning. Um, and it's that passage of Deuteronomy 6 uh, that is challenging us as a church that we want to obey and we want to serve God. And that's the, that's the reason we're doing the D6 discipleship program for people to take home with them. Uh, but it's also just a great book of the Bible that we're going through to learn more about God and to see how the Old Testament connects with the New, what it teaches us about Jesus, all of those things. So the title of this message is Learning the Family Business. Um, it's becoming less and less common uh, that a child learns their life trade from their parents. It still happens sometimes, but it's less common than it used to be. In past history, the majority of people in the world would learn what would become their career or their life's work at home and with their family. Uh, a child raised on the farm would be learning how to run a farm, right? A child of a shopkeeper would learn to be a shopkeeper and so on. And of course, there are so many available occupations today, I don't think we could even list them, certainly more than there were 100 years ago. And you need to only go back a few hundred years or so to find a time when most children growing up were confined to learn the trade of their parents, or at least the trade of someone else in their local village or wherever they lived close by. There just wasn't a lot of opportunities, so people learned at home. Not only did children learn about their trades at home, they learned how to see the world. They learned about conversation. They learned about life. They learned about family history. And all this we could say, right, for the better or for the worse. Some people learned good things at home. Some people didn't. But more importantly... People learned about God from what they learned at home. And so as we continue in Deuteronomy 6 this morning, this lesson, as a warning, may come down hard on some of us. I don't apologize for that. We need to take seriously all of the word of God. And if we say we love our children, we owe it to them to teach them about the things of God. So I'm going to read our main passage and we'll get into it. I hope this is becoming very familiar to you by now, um, and we're going to continue to focus on this passage. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Our focus this morning and next week is going to be mostly verses 6 to 9. And verse 6 is where we're going to begin this morning. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. When Moses said these words to Israel, it would have been important for them to understand that sentence, right? They, you would hope that he would have hoped that they understood what he was saying. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, there have been three basic understandings of this and what it means by, by these words. Which words? Okay. What are the words? 
Over time, again, there's been three basic understandings of what Moses meant when he said these words. Option one that people have thought, well, he's talking about what, we, what, the, what the Jewish people call the Shema, which is verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So some people have taken the uh, verse 6 that these words is referring to the Shema, that's that statement in verses 4 and 5. The other option, option 2, there's actually three options. The second option is everything Moses has said up until now in the speech that he's been giving in Deuteronomy, which we've been studying since really the beginning of the year. Um, that would include the Shema, but also the Ten Commandments and the historic content as well, where Moses reminded the people of God's faithfulness. So that's option two. And then option three says that when he says these words, he's referring to all of the things that are recorded that Moses says in the whole book of Deuteronomy. Now, I think all three options have their supporters, but I, learned, I lean towards the third option personally, and I'm going to tell you why. So option one is that Moses wanted the people to have in their heart the Shema, which includes what Jesus called the greatest commandment. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. If Jesus said this was the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If Jesus said that was the greatest commandment, then it was. There's just no question about it. So therefore, it does make sense that this would be something to keep on our hearts. But also, uh, option two makes a lot of sense since it includes the Ten Commandments, right? And, uh, and it includes the recounting of God's faithfulness. So certainly, we should find much benefit in knowing the history of God's faithfulness, not only in the biblical text, but also we should be reminding ourselves often of God's faithfulness in our own lives, right? And we should share these stories of faithfulness with our children, both Janelle and I remember stories of God's faithfulness that our parents and our grandparents shared with us, and we try to share stories of his faithfulness in our own lives. And so, of course, the Ten Commandments set the basis for all the more specific laws Moses would give later on, so option two makes sense too. But option three includes all of it, and I believe that really to be what Moses was saying. It is important to know the basic and most important things and drive them home in a repetition to ourselves and to our families. But at the same time, we should always repeat the basics and know them well. We must continue advancing. I'm not athletic myself, but I'm going to try a sports analogy here. So as a student begins to learn their sport, they learn the basics, right? So in basketball, it's dribbling, free throws, the basics of offense and defense, all of that. The very best professional players continue to practice the basics again and again. But they don't stay there at the basics either. They build on those basics. They learn more advanced moves, more strategies. They work their muscles and try to get better at their sport. Or take a musician how many of us tortured our families with endless repetition of three blind mice squawked out on some wind instrument? 
and the endless practice of scales. Over time, we improved, but those who did very well with their instruments, professional musicians, still practice their scales. And I could go on with similar illustrations from various occupations and skills, but you get the idea. Most people who want to succeed in life don't just stick with the basics. They advance by building on the basics. We hear the phrase, back to the basics, all the time. Not many of us would be satisfied in any skill we have if we never moved beyond the basics we learned early on. So why is it then that many Christians are satisfied to stay exactly where they are, exactly where they began in the faith, not ever moving beyond the basics of the faith? Why are so many Christians uninterested in going deeper? Why do so many among us willingly choose not to grow in the faith? Maybe they would have preferred option one. I know the Shema, that's enough for me. Or maybe they think the Ten Commandments are important too, but that's enough, thank you very much. If I were a betting man, I would bet that the vast majority of professed Christians, that people who call themselves Christians in the U.S., would not want to be convinced that Moses meant option three. That the basics were to be built on, added to, by going far beyond the elementary principles. They might even chide me and say, well, Pastor Jason, get out of the Old Testament. You need to focus on the New Testament. We're not under the law. We're under grace. We need Jesus. Just give us the gospel. Well, I can answer that. First of all, what some people think is the gospel is a weak version of it. They just want to say, Jesus loves you and forgives you and leave it there. But the gospel includes the understanding that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The gospel includes seeing that the law of the Old Testament, really it just shows us the sinfulness and hopelessness we have outside of a Savior. And when we grasp that, then the gospel is even more beautiful, more vibrant, more exciting than ever. But if you want to insist on the New Testament, let's do that for a moment. Go to Hebrews, we'll look at Hebrews 6, 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And the writer of the Hebrews chides them that they haven't matured. He says they ought to be teachers, they ought, but they need to be taught again the basics. Hebrews 5, 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Now, if we take a moment to think about that, if I said that to a lot of people, that would be kind of insulting, right? You need to go back to the baby bottle. You can't have steak, you're not ready. And then Paul, he also chides the Corinthian church in a similar way, saying they haven't been maturing in their faith, 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food for you. We're not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
And now, being challenged by Paul and the writer to the Hebrews, maybe someone would want to narrow my preaching even further and just say, okay, I don't want to know about Paul. Just tell me what Jesus said. Well, Jesus also chided his disciples for not maturing in the faith. He said in Matthew 15, 16, he said, are you still without understanding? And again in 16, 9, he says, do you not perceive? You see, there is nowhere in Scripture we can point and say, you know what, Jesus only wants us to know a little bit. In fact, all of Scripture leads us towards understanding more about God more about his plan of salvation, to go deeper and beyond the basics, to move from spiritual milk to spiritual meat. No one who really loves God should be satisfied to not learn to know him better. And yet, so many will say in churches today, stop focusing on the rules and all that, the commandments. Focus on the love of Christ, how he cares for everyone. Focus on ministries of compassion. Focus on accepting everyone for who they are. Focus on equality and on and on. But whatever you do, don't try to make us go beyond what our feelings are craving. They say they want to show the love of Jesus. They may even use the words Great Commission. And yet when we look at the Great Commission, it's not only about telling people Jesus loves them. It's about teaching them to follow his commands. And you see, usually they just want this part of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, and 19. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But they, don't, they forget or don't want to include the next line, verse 20, which says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. John Piper has an excellent book called What Jesus Demands of the World. And in it, he writes about all the commands of Jesus found in Scripture. And I can tell you that if you said out loud much of what Piper writes in that book, in many churches today, you'd be driven out. How dare you focus on what Jesus requires of us? He's here for us. We're not here for him. Of course, no one would say it quite that way, would they? But that is really what people are getting at when they want salvation with no change of heart, no change of behavior. Yet real salvation is accompanied by a change of heart and a change of behavior that results in the new believer wanting to know God better and wanting to learn his commands so that we can show our love for him through obedience to those commands. I remember hearing someone say once, I'm not sure, but I think it was R.C. Sproul, that one of the evidences of our regeneration, and regeneration, what that is, is that's the work of the Holy Spirit to awaken and enliven the heart to receive the truth in order that we can believe upon Jesus. One of the evidences of regeneration is a fervent desire to know God better. And I found this to be true. I remember a lady I had the privilege to baptize, and she would come every Sunday with new questions for me. She was reading her Bible and having no basics that she grew up with. She was reading the Bible, and it was all foreign to her. It was all strange to her. But she was, a, she was just excited to find out what it meant. 
So her questions were different than some of the questions I usually get from people who have been in the church for their whole life or most of their life. And while sometimes the questions caught me off guard, and sometimes I didn't get to talk to anybody else after the service because she wanted to ask me all these questions, I was so delighted to see this evidence of regeneration that she had this great desire to know God better through his word. Janelle could tell you some of the happiest times I've had in ministry have been coming home from a Bible study or a men's group or something like that where the participants were really engaging with the Word of God. I'd be sailing. I love that. This is indeed one of the evidences of a sincere faith, a deep desire to know God better and learn His Word. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Moses, of course, wants the basics to be remembered. Absolutely. But what he really wants the people to do is to develop a fear of God, a holy and reverent fear. And I believe Moses wants others to experience the closeness to God that he experienced. Verses 7 to 9, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall walk of them when you sit in your house, and shall talk of them when you sit in the house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know, when I study a passage, I read it a lot of times, and one of the times that I was reading it this past week, I glanced at it and I thought it said, You shall talk of them when you sit on your horse. But do you know that that would fit within that too? For those of you that like horses, I live in Wellington, there's a lot of horses. Um, This portion of Scripture is going to spill into next week because I can't possibly cover it all this week. And then the week after that, we kick, kick off D6 Everyday Discipleship Program that we're doing. The leadership team at Oasis Church is unanimously agreed that we want to make obeying this command a top priority. And this includes helping parents and grandparents to obey it. And the children as well. And this is one of the things that, as someone called into ministry, that I'm to do. You see, there's a lot of wrong thinking in churches about what is everyone's responsibility? What is their role? We're all responsible for the commands of Deuteronomy 6. The job of the church is not to do this for you. The job of those in ministry is to equip you that you can do it yourself. In Ephesians, Paul wrote, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up. See, there's that word again, grow up. We're not supposed to stay with the basics. Grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
So Paul reminds us that the saints, that is, all the people who have found salvation in Christ are saints. I know there's other religions that say saints are certain high-up people. According to Scripture, everyone who's a faithful follower of Jesus is a saint. Okay? All of us, then, are to do the work of ministry. But those who are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds or pastors and teachers have a special responsibility to equip the saints for that ministry. This is a heavy charge. I want to be obedient to it. The elders of your church, Kevin, Brandon, and Ron, want to be obedient to it. Our other governing board members, Susie, Melissa, and Wyatt, want to be obedient to it. There's something very important to remember here, and that is that the job of teaching children about the faith is primarily the parents' responsibility, not the church. But the church should be equipping parents to do it. And this is exactly what we intend to do. For all those parents and grandparents willing to be equipped to train their children in the faith, we are ready and willing to help you every step of the way. And that is why we're investing heavily in D6. I have a friend who's a Lutheran pastor, Missouri Synod, and you may have come from a Lutheran, a Catholic background, and they have confirmation classes for kids. These classes teach the kids a basic systematic theology. And while I have a concern that in the Catholic Church, or in the, well, both the Catholic and the Lutheran Church, there are some people who think they're saved because they went to confirmation class when we know that salvation's not from the class, right? Um, but I wouldn't say the class itself in the Lutheran Church is not valuable. In fact, many evangelical churches have kids that could not tell you much about what the Trinity is or what atonement means or justification or sanctification, and many adults can't either. Well, anyway, one day my friend told me when he begins the confirmation class, he requires the fathers to come to the first class. And in front of their own kids, he tells the fathers that it's your job to teach these things. But since you won't, we have to do it at the church. Pretty bold. I, I said, for real, you say that? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I do. Now, we could argue about the tact of how he's saying it. I, I understand that. But he's telling the truth. In the teaching of children in the faith... It isn't the church with primary responsibility. It's the parents. Yet in most cases, parents view it as the church's responsibility to make sure their children know all they need to know. So they send them to Sunday school or youth group or Awana, which are all great, by the way. Not putting them down in any way. Don't take it that way. They might bring them to Sunday service, well, at least half the time or maybe once a month. But they don't teach them diligently. They don't talk about the Bible when they sit down and when they walk or drive or when they lie down and when they get up. But they drop them off at the kids' programs at the church and then they wonder when the child turns into an adult, why don't they serve the Lord? So whose fault is it if a child in a Christian home cannot articulate the basics of the faith? Is it the fault of the church or the fault of the parents? Who do you think's to blame? The mother and the father. Oompa, oompa. Sorry. So, <laughs> so how did we get to the point where most evangelical Christians 
feel the primary responsibility of teaching their children about the faith falls with the church primarily. Well, I'm going to give a quick history lesson. We'll talk more about this next week. I read a very interesting uh, account of the history of church architecture. And that tells us a little about how the church has evolved to be the way it is. Most of us have not lived long enough to see the trend completely firsthand, but we can see it if we visit older churches, and we can see that something's happened. The structures from 120 years ago are different than the structures today. How did that happen? The interesting thing about when I read about this church architecture throughout history is that in the past century, or maybe a little more than a century, it's evolved, and it seems like the pattern has followed the pattern of public school buildings. If you were to visit my hometown of Minot, North Dakota, and if you went to the fairgrounds there, you would find the Pioneer Village. Some of you have been to something like this, a little village set up to, with old structures, so you can see what, you get a history lesson. And, and in that Pioneer Village, you would see two very similar buildings, a church and a school. Now, that was a one-room schoolhouse, and when I was in the fourth grade, our class got to go have a day of class in that old one-room schoolhouse as kind of a history, a practical history lesson. And I remember because it was a cool fall day, and there was, we were not allowed to uh, start the wood stove that was, used to be in there. Um, and it was very special to me, because that one-room schoolhouse on the fairgrounds in North Dakota was the same schoolhouse that my dad and my aunts and uncles went to. It had been the prairie school near a tiny town called Norwich, North Dakota, and it had been moved to the state fairgrounds, and since the school had become a museum, there were some old photos and other items that had some of my family history in it old black and white photos that included my uncles and aunts and my dad as a boy. And on one wall, I was very pleased to see that my dad had earned a gold star for hygiene. Here's my point about the schoolhouse and the church that were there. The structures are very similar. In fact, if it weren't for the cross and you were standing across the little village there, you might not know right away which one was the church and which one was the school. In those days, the school was built like the church. Today, the church looks like the public schools. Then, in one single room, children of all ages learned together. One teacher for all my uncles and aunts and my dad and others my dad, by the way, had 10 brothers and sisters. So at times, they were the majority of the class. And there were many lessons that were taught to the whole class, all ages, all together. And then there's other lessons that were in private where the student would come up and either stand or sit next to the teacher's desk while the others quietly worked in their seats. And the church likewise had all the ages together, learning in one large room all hearing the same sermon, singing the same songs. And after church, the family would go home together. Maybe if they lived close, they'd walk home or they'd go in a wagon or something like that. And maybe they taught as they walked along the way and talked about what they learned in church. 
Over time, public schools changed from being one-room schools to what we see today. Some architects call it an egg crate design uh, that we're also familiar with. In other words, a hallway down the middle and classrooms on both sides, kind of like an, an egg carton. Children were divided first into broader age groups and eventually to individual grades. The public schools, for better or worse, evolved, and even as the children for older uh, got older in many schools, they were not even with the same classmates all day. That was in my high school. There some cla- I might have a classmate in one classroom and totally different people in the next because you're moving around like that. So the interesting thing is that the history of church architecture in America has followed the pattern of the public school. And it's fair to question whether this is the right way to go. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have children's or youth programs. Uh, We do, and there's reasons for that. I want to consider, though, why it is that so many parents trust the church to teach their kids about the faith rather than taking that responsibility on themselves. And I believe it's because we've been conditioned slowly but surely over time, to delegate more and more of our parental authority and responsibility to others to raise our kids. To put it another way, we've bought into the idea that outsourcing is the way to go. We trust other experts in many areas to do what we used to do by ourselves. My mom shared with me years ago the requirements from graduating 8th grade. I don't remember the year. It might have been 1880 or something like that. Most of those eight graders, if they met those requirements to graduate, uh, would put many high school seniors to shame, and probably the rest of us too. They had to demonstrate they could balance a ledger like a checkbook. They had to know algebra. They had to know how to spell difficult words. They had to know their American history. They had to be able to describe how the three branches of government worked. So if you ever talk to an old-timer and tells you, you know, I only have an eighth-grade education... Keep in mind that they may be more educated than some of us. And remember that education happened for countless people in a one-room schoolhouse with all the distractions of, all, of kids of all different ages learning together, something in our own heads we seem to think is impossible today. And I say all of this so that if you're a parent or grandparent, and at this point you've heard my sermon and you're feeling bad, you don't think you're doing what you ought to, I want you to understand that what you have been conditioned to think that others, that is that others like experts are better at teaching your children about the faith than you are. That you haven't been to Bible college or seminary, so you're not qualified to teach your children about the faith. And I also want to encourage you, if you feel you've fallen short in this area, it's never too late to repent and obey God's word. You would be amazed at how many testimonies are out there of parents who missed the mark for the first 10 or 15 years even of their kid's life. And then they took it seriously. And many who have truly repented have found that God is gracious. He is. He can restore. He can make up the time even that you've lost. The time can be redeemed. One of the most powerful evidences of God's grace a child will ever witness is a repentant parent. So if you have failed in keeping Deuteronomy 6, repent and believe. And repent means to make a U-turn. Now, I have made more U-turns in the one year I've been in Florida than my whole life before that. 
here a U-turn is just part of the normal route, right? But making a U-turn can set you on the right path. And after you repent and believe, come to church every Sunday early to be part of D6. We're going to show you how to do this. We're going to teach you how to have a conversation with your kids about how we're all learning together. We are providing an opportunity for you. We will, we, we've got some excellent teachers who are going to be teaching your children. But what will impact your children even more is if you choose to participate at home and take charge as the God-ordained teacher of your children about the faith. I started out by talking about how children used to learn their occupation from their parent. What greater occupation can we have than learning the love of God and to obey him? Moses said, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So we, as parents and grandparents and leaders, must make sure we do this part well so that we can do the next part as well and teach our children. I want to close by addressing those adults in the congregation who do not currently have children at home. Whether you're single, never married, or you're married and don't have children, or your children have moved out, or whatever your situation is, you need to understand there's a very important role for you as well. Psalm 68.5 says that God is the father to the fatherless. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God is father to the fatherless, and he has given it to many blessed people in the church to fill in for children without parents. We may also consider this as spiritually fatherless children. We've got a lot of kids that come to youth group. That's the only exposure they have all week to anything that's of the Lord. We will have opportunities to raise up spiritual children that need a loving adult to guide them in life and in faith. Some people say that a sign of a healthy church is that there's kids there. I would add to that and say a healthy church not only has kids, but older folks as well. And a really healthy church is one where those kids have a relationship with those older people as well. You're, you older people in the church have a wonderful opportunity to encourage our kids. And I know many of you already do this. Do not think for a minute that D6 is just for young families. I want to see all of you participate. What better way to start a conversation with one of our kids than ask them about something we were just learning together in Sunday school, since we're all going to be learning about the same thing each week. Let's all make a commitment to take that effort to get up early on Sunday to participate. There's nothing you will ever do on earth that be more important than you getting to know God better and learning to teach to others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning.